and by your Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, in your will discover peace. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, many years ago, we uh, bought our house in Newbury Park, maybe, I don't know, almost 15 years, somewhere around there, getting close. And I realized when we bought the house that we bought that I was going to have to start from scratch when it came to landscaping of the property, which was this, this jungle of overrun disaster, right? And so I wanted to be a good steward. Uh, we also live in the desert. Um, so I decided that I was going to create this drought-tolerant native California garden out of our yard. So six years later, um, that happened, but it took a long time. And so drought tolerance refers to the degree to which a plant is adapted to arid or drought-like conditions. And so drought-tolerant landscapes are kind of a thing right now. Um, a lot of people in the Canal Valley have been ripping out their thirsty, water-loving plants, replacing them with drought-tolerant plants. We have a few in here that have done that. And so I read today's scripture, and it's about doubt, not drought. All right, we're going to play on words. <laughs> And so when I read the scripture, the first thing that crossed my mind, I began to ask myself these questions. How doubt tolerant is God? What degree, you know, to what degree is, does God tolerate human feelings of uncertainty or lack of belief? Is God big enough to handle our doubts? And so what I discovered when I read today's text was that God was actually much more doubt-tolerant than what I first expected. And so the question is, nice and easy one here, who's heard of the idiom Doubting Thomas, right? <laughs> Most people are pretty familiar with this. Now, anyone want to care to, uh, this, questions aren't rhetorical in this church. <laughs> everybody here actually knows that, like I preach other places and I ask a question, everybody just stares at me. Um, <laughs> What is a Doubting Thomas? Who will venture and answer? I know most of our kids are playing soccer this morning, or they're over there. They would answer. I know they would answer. Come on. Wendy, what's a Doubting Thomas? Kind of got to see it to believe it. Perfect. Got to see it to believe it. Show me. Right? So, the idiom comes from the Bible. Right? So, here we go. I've always wondered this. Why are so many Christians scared of doubt. Why do so many churches discourage doubt when the Bible is full of so many examples of it? And so this is one of the reasons I love being a, a Presbyterian, right? We don't look very Presbyterian, but, but in some ways we are, we are um, just with a disco ball. <laughs> We're supposed to ask good questions. We're supposed to engage the scriptures with the brain that God gave us. We're supposed to be honest with each other and with God, because without this type of honesty, this unresolved doubt just has a way of coming back over and over again, and sometimes in more toxic ways later on. And so what we're going to learn today is that God is doubt-tolerant, and many of our churches and some of our fellow Christians are not. But we also are going to learn that God wants to replace our doubts and replace them with belief. And so, a couple of years ago, this big story came out, some of you might remember it, about the Archbishop of Canterbury, his name is Justin Welby. He leads over 80 million Anglicans around the world. This guy publicly questioned if God were really there. That's kind of a 
in his position, you might call that a mistake. <laughs> People had a field day with this guy, right? At this honest man's expense. And so that a few things I found, International Business Times called it the doubt of the century. There was this famous Australian atheist columnist who tweeted, all caps, victory. Um, the Daily Show even chimed in, and there was a quote from The Daily Show. They said, oh, this is kind of funny, but he said, Archbishop of Canterbury admits doubts about the existence of God. But atheism doesn't pay the bills, so... Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> so this guy is just this easy target. Right? The butt of all the jokes, but his honesty makes him human. And so what we didn't hear when this story first came out from most of these jokesters or from the atheist columnists or whatnot was the fact that this guy had actually known some really serious anguish and pain that had been part of his life. He lost his firstborn child, Johanna, at seven months in a car accident. And he described this period of his life as utter agony. As a teenager, when all these other kids are doing teenage stuff, this guy's taking care of his alcoholic father, right? And so we don't hear these things when this story came out. And when he explained his thoughts on doubt, he referenced Psalm 88, which reads, darkness is my closest friend. This guy hit some really dark places that caused him to doubt. He lived the words of those psalms. And so the truth of the matter is that every person at some point in their life experiences these points of doubt. I love this simple line from Mark's gospel when Jesus heals this young, tormented boy and he asks his father if he believes. And the father's response is, he says, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And so we're this strange mixture of belief and unbelief. And I wonder if it has more to do with what we do with our doubt that might be more important. Doubt just acknowledges our limitations, but it also can be a crucial part in helping us form some of our most fundamental beliefs. And so this, this is a great story. Philip Yancey, he wrote one of the classic books in Christianity called What's So Amazing About Grace. I don't know if anyone's read that book. It's really good. Uh, came out a long time ago, but it's still a really excellent book. This is a guy who came to faith in Jesus because his doubt actually told him to question and examine the stuff that he just blindly accepted when he was a kid. And so, while certainty can calcify into rigidity, doubts can often deepen and actually clarify our faith. And so, doubt's not all that bad. And so we're going to hear this gospel reading from John chapter 12, um, and we're going to kind of decide for ourselves, how doubt-tolerant do you see the God of this story? But Thomas, who is called the twin one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger in the mark of the nails, and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. 
Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, If you believe because you have seen me, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. This is the Gospel of the Lord. And so it's on that evening, the first Easter Sunday, Jesus had appeared to his gathered disciples who were huddled behind these locked doors out of fear that they too might suffer the same fate as Jesus. But doubting Thomas, he's not even there. He's gone. I read one commentator, I thought that was funny. And he said that this was the single most inopportunely, maybe most irresponsibly missed meeting in church history. (laughs) The one meeting that Thomas misses, and the resurrected Christ shows up. And it's like, this this is how my brain works. I'm like, where was he? Is he golfing? Is he in Vegas with Rick Lee? Uh, Fishing? (laughs) When everybody shows up, Thomas is gone. He's nowhere to be found. And when I thought about why is he not there, maybe it was because of his doubts. He must have doubted Jesus' own teaching, as Jesus had told Thomas and the other disciples at least three different times, that he must, he said, he must go to Jerusalem, suffer, die, and rise. Thomas had heard this multiple times. But clearly that wasn't enough for him. He must have even doubted Mary Magdalene's eyewitness account that we looked at last week on Easter Sunday when she had gone to the tomb as a mourner to grieve and instead encountered the risen Christ very much alive. Imagine how fast she ran to tell her disciples, Jesus' disciples, that she had seen the Lord. But that clearly wasn't enough for Thomas. Dead people don't rise. Crucified messiahs are a failure. And so, while the other other disciples, they hold on, they remain together, Thomas just ventures out alone, on his own. I don't know about you, but wouldn't you like to know what he did? What kinds of things that are going through his mind? And I just guess at this, because the scriptures don't say, but my guess is that he's a lot like the Archbishop of Canterbury. Thomas was hurting inside. He just lost his, his teacher, his friend. Uh, his Lord and God, as we'll see when we get to the end of this text. Anyone remember the comic strip Hagar the Horrible, the Viking guy? All right. There's a great Hagar comic strip, right? And so in the comic strip, he's on his knees and he's praying. And he says, it's not easy to believe in you, God. We, can, we never see you. How do we even know that you even exist? And then all these frames appear after he says this prayer. And the frames are a flower beginning to bloom, a volcano erupting, the eclipse of the sun, uh, uh, a comet in the sky, a tidal wave. And then it gets a burning bush and a stone that's rolled away from the entrance of a tomb. And the final drawing has Hagar like crawling himself up out of the mud, all soaking wet. And he says, okay, okay, every time I give up, Every time that I bring this subject up, all we get is interruptions. 
<laughs> and so, I need to say, we're all a little bit like Hagar. We all have these times when we face our doubts. And the degree of our doubt may be dependent on the cause. Some people doubt God's existence. Some might doubt the identity of God's Son. Some might doubt God's goodness or God's presence with us. Thomas doubted the resurrection. Thomas knew that the Romans were excellent executioners. He knew that they didn't make mistakes, that Jesus was dead, and that was the one thing that he was really certain of. And so my favorite part of this story is just the fact that it even exists. If the evangelist John was scared of death, like so many Christians, he would never have included this story in his gospel. He would have taken it out. John, like God, is doubt-tolerant. He's not scared of doubt. In fact, I actually think that John treasures this story and includes it in his gospel because of its honesty. And think about its potential to help other people who also struggle with doubt like he did in their own lives. So he wants proof. Isn't that exactly what all of us want? To know with some certainty that Jesus really was raised from the dead. And he says, unless I put my finger, my hands, fingers in the nail marks in Jesus' hands, unless he had the ability to put his hand in, in Jesus' side where that sword had pierced his flesh, he would not believe. His ten brothers, the remaining disciples, they had seen Jesus standing right in front of them. They probably must have told Thomas about it, but clearly that wasn't enough either. It should have been, but it wasn't. And so the Bible says that the, it says exactly, you know, eight days later, that's exactly one week in, in Bible times, because they actually counted the present day as the first day. So one week later, the disciples are gathered together, just like Christians have been doing for a couple thousand years now, on Sunday, the week after Easter, Jesus shows up again. He returns to be among his disciples. I think particularly to be with one disciple, Thomas. Had Jesus overheard what Thomas had said? Did the other disciples tell him what Thomas had said? Tell him his doubts? Well, there's a couple things we do know for sure. Interestingly enough, Jesus doesn't make Thomas feel guilty for having doubts. He doesn't call into question his salvation he doesn't do some of the things that I, probably you have too, that I've heard Christians do to people who have experienced some doubt in their lives. In fact, not only does he tolerate, he actually honors Thomas's doubt. This is what I picture. I picture Jesus having had for an entire week this struggling, hurting, doubting Thomas on his mind and in his heart for that entire week. He cares about Thomas, his friend. He cares about his inner spiritual condition as well. He wants Thomas to know the truth. And he wants to replace his doubts with genuine faith. So Jesus addresses his doubts head on. He offers Thomas the proof that he needs to believe. Real physical evidence of his resurrection. 
We don't know that Jesus meets every doubter like this. But we do know that this is exactly how he met Thomas. Can you imagine being Thomas, taking a hold of Jesus' hand? This, to me, has got to be one of the most overwhelming images in Scripture. How could Thomas see anything with the tears that must have been flowing down this guy's face when he took a hold of Jesus' hand? Can you imagine yourself, with all your own doubts, standing in front of the risen Christ, placing your fingers in the wounds of his hands, or your hand into the gaping hole in his side? Evidently, the evidence was compelling. It was so compelling that Thomas makes a confession unlike any other confession in the entire New Testament. He said, my Lord and my God, he addressed Jesus as God, which is the only time in the Gospels that Jesus is directly addressed as God. He gets it. These things in his life that were blurry were coming into focus. And the question that I asked myself when I got to this point was, could I take all of my doubt and believe even though I haven't seen, even though I haven't touched? Could we do that? I found this story that interested me. It took place during the Holocaust. And in France, there was a, a Jewish family. They were hidden by some concerned French nationals in the basement of their house. And they were there for a very, very long time. And the Jewish family waited and they waited and they waited for their deliverance. And at the end of the war, when they left and the family went into the basement, they found a couple sentences scribbled onto the walls of the basement. And the things that were left there were this. They wrote, I believe in the sun even when it doesn't shine. I believe in love even when it is not given. I believe in God even when God is silent. And so this family's belief was stronger than their doubts. And I love the story about Thomas. It ends kind of abruptly, but we know that this isn't the actual end of his story. The confession of Jesus that Thomas makes is more like a springboard that propelled him into ministry with others who shared his doubts. Thomas didn't remain a doubter. He actually became an outspoken advocate for Jesus. And so when I looked at the church tradition about him, church tradition tells us that Thomas went to ancient Babylon, modern-day Iraq. Then he went to Persia, modern-day Iran, where he preached and won disciples. Then he sailed to Malabar on the west coast of India in about 52 AD, where he preached and established churches there. And when the Portuguese landed in India in the 1600s, they found a group of Christians there called the Martama Church. It was established by Thomas a millennium and a half earlier. This guy made a lasting difference. He finally, at the end of his life, traveled to the east coast of India, where he was killed in Mylapore. They threw him in a pit and ran a spear through him, and that was very similar to the fate of the rest of his disciples. And so I think it's fair to say that his doubt, in many regards, had, been, had become very, very strong belief. 
Thomas, in fact, gave his life to the risen Christ, did he ever have doubts? Perhaps. We don't know. But we know that he gave his life to the risen Christ, and we know what he did, and we know the countless lives that this guy went on to influence. And I love this story because when I read it, I think that this is the kind of, this is a great story. It's one that still speaks really strongly to us today. He's reminding us that God is doubt tolerant. That God deals tenderly with all those who doubt. But we also know that God wants to replace that doubt with belief. Jesus seems to even admit here that all of us who come after Thomas, we're not going to have the same luxury as him. We won't have this opportunity to place our hands in his hands, or our hands in his side. But Thomas did have this opportunity. And John wrote it down for us that we might be encouraged by it, that people might come to faith because of this story. So I believe that Thomas really did touch the Lord that day. I trust in the inspired word of God that we call the Bible. I just think it's just got to be the greatest gift we've ever been given I think that Jesus wants to offer us the same blessing that he said to Thomas. He said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Those who have not seen and yet they still believe. These people are promised life in his name. This full, forgiven, forever life in the name of Jesus. This is what he wants the world to know. That's why Jesus sends us the church. We share in Christ's mission. So if Christ has been raised and we have a job to do, Thomas did his job. The other disciples, they did their job. The church has been proclaiming this truth for over 2,000 years, and that's why we proclaim it today that Jesus Christ is risen. God's not afraid of our doubt. Although some Christians and some churches are afraid of doubt, I'm convinced that more and more that God is uh, very doubt tolerant. That God wants us to examine the witness of Scripture for ourselves, praying that the Holy Spirit would give us the wisdom that we need to understand it and the faith to live it out. God wants to replace our doubt with belief in His Son, who died and who rose so that all of us might truly live. We pray with Lord Jesus, we believe, but we ask that you would help us in our unbelief. God, we come to you trusting in your inspired word. We ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit, the resurrected Christ, that our faith might be strengthened because we've gathered here today around this story of Daddy Thomas. Help us, God, as we struggle to believe. Bless us when we do, even though we haven't seen. We pray this in your Son's loving name. Amen.